And we're back on another episode of Think On That. This is the Everything and Anything podcast. I'm Matt Goody. Got your boy Alex. And we've been gone for a little while, so I'll apologize now. I had a funeral I had to go to one week, and then we were just chatting with our guest here. The lost episode <laughs> of last week. Should we tell the story? Yeah, why We not? tell the story. Let's introduce our guest first. Yeah. Our guest is a theoretical physicist who studied at Cambridge and is currently doing his PhD at... University of Toronto. University of Toronto. Ooh, this guy's like Ivy <laughs> League all the way. Anyways, Mike Imzies. We went to elementary school together. We did. Welcome. Way back when. Way, way back, back when. A million years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be with you guys. I'd like to reiterate what you do. You are a theoretical physicist. Theoretical physicist. That's right. We've been right. teeing you up. We've been excited for you to come on the show for a while. <laughs> I've been excited to be here. Yeah. So we're going to dive right into it. But first, we're going to tell the story about the last episode. Yeah. Because, yeah, we have to. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, 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 we're at a cottage, right? <laughs> we had this all planned out. We're going to, you know, we're going to bring the camera. We're going to bring some mics. We're going to kayak out onto an island. Beautiful spot. Water in the background. The whole nine yards. On a bright, sunshiny day. It was yeah. the perfect morning. Beautiful. Beautiful day. We got there right on time. Everything was going well. And, you know, I had a weird hunch. I got up about an hour in, went to the camera, and it was not recording. <laughs> Oh. And now we're into a great conversation that we will have again. <laughs> we have. And we'll, we'll, we'll have come to back release. better. That's what we said to each other. So no, we it's tried fine. To make the glass half full. We'll come back. Yeah, exactly. We're going to come back stronger. Yeah. Are you guys going to go to the same spot? Like, no. In the cottage? No. Or? It was no. so far away. Yeah, it was like two hours oh, okay. away. And, yeah. and it, but it was on a quiet, secluded lake yeah. on this tiny little island in the middle of this lake. Oh. And like this island I'm talking is like no bigger than this condo. Like it is. Really? Yeah, it's small. Where, where, where's the cottage again? Uh, Boy Lake. Perry Sound, yeah. Perry oh, okay, Sound, which okay, is Boy okay, Lake, yeah. Yeah, okay. beautiful, pristine. Yeah. Oh, wow. Two hours yeah, outside man. of Toronto. It yeah. was a heartbreaker. Yeah. Well, I think I could speak for all the fans that you have when we say, when I say, uh, we want that episode. <laughs> we want that episode. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. It'll but come. It'll we come. want this episode, so let's <laughs> dive right in. Yeah, we've been itching for this one. Okay, so before the show, I kind of asked you, really quickly what your like specialty was mm-hmm. in theoretical physics yeah and you said well yeah so of course theoretical physics is very broad so right. what i'm interested in uh is something called quantum gravity string theory black hole physics yeah. uh that sort of thing origin of the universe that sort of thing so yes. uh it's quite an interesting subject and quite right. a heavy subject for mm-hmm. people when they first get introduced to it uh right. but hopefully i can sort of answer some some questions that, that you might have, and we could talk a little bit about specifically what I do. Right. How long have you been studying those? So topics? I will tell you uh, how I got interested in, in, okay. in physics, because when I was in high school, I graduated high school in 2015 from St. Max, mm-hmm. um, and I had not, at that point, upon graduating, upon throwing that cap in the air, I had not taken a single physics class, math class. The only science class I did was biology in, in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people, when I tell people that, they're like, how did you ever get into university well, and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if you remember, um, for the graduating classes, I think every year they had this thing called S-Trip, uh-huh. right? Right. So I went on S-Trip. We went to Putikana just for uh, a, gradu- a graduation um, sort of vacation over uh, March break, I think it was. And it was a great time. Had a lot of fun. And on the plane ride home... And, and sorry, I had applied to university before this for like sport business or something, got into a few, got rejected from a few. And then uh, on the plane ride home, I decided there's a lot of hype about this film called Interstellar. 
Mm-hmm. And so on the planet... Oh, yeah. yeah. Right, it's, it's an One extraordinary movie. Mm-hmm. One of the best. Some might say life-changing movie. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So when I watch the movie, there is a scene in the movie... Um, I haven't seen it in a long time, so I guess it was they're on like a planet or something, like a water planet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they were on the planet, and there was one guy um, in a space station orbiting, and it was something like an hour for the people on the planet was equivalent to seven years for the guy yeah. Yeah. on the space station. Yeah. And I thought, I was watching that, and I'm like, really? Yeah. That seems like science fiction. How could time run differently for different people, depending yeah. on where they are? Yeah. So I went home after watching that movie and started to do a little research online. And wow, this thing called relativity, Einstein, and sort of what his ideas, and that led me into a little bit of quantum physics. And wow, this is really interesting. Wow. And Holy so uh, I decided to reject all of my university offers, and I had to do summer school for 11th grade physics, and then I went back to do a victory lab to do 12th grade physics, calculus. I did calculus in night school. Um, advanced functions, that sort of thing, and reapplied for physics and astronomy and ended up going to University of, of Waterloo for my undergrad. So that was ever since like 2015-ish, right. to answer your question. Okay. Um, so it's been about, about eight, eight years Wow. I've been interested in science Your and brain physics. is extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. I have hobbies that I picked up and interests I picked up after high school. Because I've had a very, very like diverse career background, yeah. but man, for you to just be like, oh, relativity. Most people, and then most you're people, like getting a yeah. PhD. You have yeah. a fantastic brain. Well, look, I, I'll I'll tell you sort of why I got so cap- captivated by it, and 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 really, I think you know, so I can't remember who said this, but somebody said, I, I think I think it was a physicist, famous physicist called Richard Feynman, and he was. Um, he published a lot of books, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody said to him, for every equation in your book, you're going to reduce the number of sold copies by half. Because people don't like equations. Right, people right. don't like math generally. They just want the ideas. But for me, in, in looking at videos on YouTube and, and watching professors explain relativity, quantum physics, when they would write the math on the board, of which I had no idea what they were writing, right. there was something in me... I guess kind of like when people look at ancient Egypt and look at hieroglyphics, yeah. they're like, what does this mean? Right. That, that, that's, that's what I had in my mind curiosity. when I saw this. Yeah. It was just a curiosity. What does this mean? This is so fascinating. Uh, the idea of, of gravity as some, something called curved space-time and quantum, quantum mechanics and, and something called quantum field theory. And, and it was the math that actually, that actually uh, drove me to, to, to want to understand that better. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Wow. That is, yeah. Wow. Safe to say he's not a flat earther. <laughs> <laughs> I highly doubt it. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll debunk flat earth if you want, but, but you know, we can sort of talk about that later. Yeah, I, yeah. Okay, so one of the things that I'm particularly interested in, well, both of us actually, we spend a lot of time talking about it, not just on the show, but personally too, is like you said, like the origin of the universe and like mm. ancient beings and like we often talk about ancient civilizations on earth and like our yeah. perspective is sort of like, oh, you know, sentient intelligent beings have probably lived on this earth for like hundreds of millions of years Mm. you know Mm. so what was the universe like then and like were there like people who were traversing it and all that stuff yeah we've had those kind of questions but i mean before you can even get to that we went to you 
because we want to understand like the fabric of. The <laughs> so do that's I. That's a good starting <laughs> place, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. That's probably the the, the bare starting place because these questions are addressing the fundamental structure of of what the universe is made out of. That's really what I study. Mm-hmm. I'm in the high energy theory group right. at the University of Toronto. Okay. And so we have people in our group trying to understand particle physics. We have people in our group trying to understand what is space-time made out of, mm-hmm. um, which is wow. what I do. Um, wow. and, and so we're really talking about the, the fundamental nature of what this place is. Right. right. Um, so so what, what is this place? Well, this place is... Uh, a very vast, vast place, full of stars, galaxies, planets, uh, interstellar gas, interstellar dust. Um, of course, we only know, uh, to at least at this point in history, as I sit t- here talking to you guys, um, we only know roughly five percent of what the universe is made out of. So you look at all, you look at these. You look at these photos, these beautiful photos by right. Hubble Space Telescope or and the, Webb, by, the, James by, by the James Webb Telescope. Right. And you see all of these these galaxies. Every dot in that uh, uh, picture, except for the ones with spikes, those are stars in our own galaxy. Mm. Um, but every dot in that picture is a galaxy, each containing 100 billion two to 200 billion stars themselves. Right. Right. And so you see a vast array, all of that stuff, all the galaxies, all the planets, all the stars... All the dust that's out there, five percent of the universe. It's yeah. a lot to it's a lot to grasp for sure. I'm I'm sure also for you, but even yeah. to your average person, when you explain that to them, and then they say that the universe is also expanding. Mm-hmm. It's not well. just expanding; it's accelerating oh, as wow. it's expanding, so as far as we could tell. What does that mean? Okay. Like, where where is it expanding to, and and how do yeah. we know it's accelerating? So so I'll do I'll do the second question first okay. how do we know it's it's accelerating yeah so uh if you've ever been if you ever have been sitting on a bench or something and an ambulance drives by right what you'll hear is you'll hear the ambulance and this high pitch uh, uh alarm or, or you know um yeah whatever you call that the siren the siren yeah right. and uh, as as it's coming toward you you'll hear it at a high pitch because the sound waves are kind of, it's coming toward you, so the sound waves are being sort of crunched up mm. as they come to you. Yeah. And as it passes you, the pitch of the siren goes down, mm-hmm. so you hear it as lower. Okay, That's true. Right? Because the sound waves are being stretched now because it's going past you. It's going, right. Right? Yeah. right? So these are sound waves that do this. This is something called the Doppler effect. Right. And so light is, can be thought of as a wave in certain regimes um (laughs) and and so basically what we do is we look out into the cosmos and we see um galaxies and and stars within the galaxies and these galaxies have are are radiating uh, at particular frequencies of light Mm. okay and we know what these frequencies are that's how we 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 know how what stars are made out, out of because we know if the sun, for example, is radiating light, and some of the sun's atmosphere is absorbing that light, and it absorbs the light at very specific frequencies depending on what the sun is made out of. Okay. Okay. Holy. 
So right. So we figure this out. Yes. And and so when we look in, in at galaxies that are moving away, galaxies do this as well. Depending on what the galaxies, the stars in the galaxies are made out of, depending on uh, their composition. Um, Does their proximity see, to other galaxies affect that too? Sorry. Does their proximity to other galaxies affect that too? Um, on cosmological scales, no, not not particularly no what, what, what we're really talking about is observing the light from the galaxies okay. so in the, the light of an individual galaxy doesn't depend on the other galaxies surrounding it right. okay anyway um, um, so these galaxies are radiating at particular frequencies and we know what these frequencies are because we study these frequencies in our labs right we know the specific wavelengths mm-hmm. that these uh, frequencies of light are at when we look at the galaxies that are receding from us, we see that they are a little bit more red. The galaxies appear a little bit more red. And that's because as the ambulance, as the sound waves are getting longer and longer as the ambulance goes away from you, the light waves coming from the galaxies are getting stretched and longer wavelengths correspond to more red light. And oh, so when okay. we look at the light, and we see, oh, it's slightly red-shifted, we call it. We know that the universe is expanding, and when we calculate, okay, we say, we calculate, we, we can figure out what the rate is, at how fast these galaxies are moving, and it turns out um, that if a galaxy is twice the distance uh, away from us, then it's going to be moving at twice the velocity, as compared to a galaxy that's, let's say, like if a galaxy was one light year away from us, let's say, mm-hmm. right. it'd be moving at some velocity. If another galaxy was two light years away, it'd be moving at twice the velocity right, of the right, first one. Right. Right? Right, right. It's a linear relation. Um, anyway, uh, so, so we could figure out how fast they're moving away from us. And it turns out that as far as we could tell, they're too far away from us than what our math says. So we say, and there's experimental data on this, so we, so, so we conclude that it must be getting faster and faster, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the universe. And that's what, and, and, and this is related to something called dark energy. Dark energy makes up 70% of our universe, and we have no idea what it is. Is this what they refer to as dark matter? Dark matter? Dark matter is something else. Dark matter so is... Also, dark energy dark matter. So you think dark, you know. Eh? So as I said, 5% of our universe <laughs> is known, is, is the matter that we know of. 25%, roughly, is dark matter. Okay. Dark matter, we think, are contained mostly in halos around galaxies. Dark matter doesn't, as far as we could tell, interact uh, with any known interaction except for gravity. We, could, we know that it interacts gravitationally because it affects how galaxies rotate, for example. Right. Uh, that, that's 25%, and then 70% is the dark energy that we think is causing the universe to accelerate in, ex- in, ex- in its expansion. And we have no idea what these things are. What if we have absolutely no idea? Are like two separate like universes within our own universe? You know what I mean? Like a layered cold multiverse existence. But like everything that's dark matter, we can't perceive it or understand. We can get into. We we can we can certainly get into that uh, and sort of just a question. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just Gavin. Just Gavin. (laughs) Please continue. I'm I'm fascinated. Yeah. uh, Anyway, so that's how we know the universe is accelerating and 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 that it's. yeah, expanding. And, and interestingly, when, so when Einstein first wrote down his, his equations of gravity, his equations of general relativity, uh, you could solve them for an expanding universe. 
Einstein didn't really like the idea of an expanding universe. He liked the idea of a stationary universe. Right. But the problem was when he first wrote down his equations in 1915, uh, what they predicted was they predicted a universe contracting in and on itself. And that kind of makes sense because gravity you yeah, know, pulls pulling. things together. Pulls, so right. gravity wants to pull the universe in, mm-hmm. right. right? He didn't like that idea. He thought the universe had to be static. So what he ended up doing was modifying his equation a little bit to introduce an extra term in his uh, equation called the cosmological constant. Mm -hmm. Einstein is tarnished! And what this... (laughs) And what this... (laughs) Hold on, hold on! Settle down over there, buddy! You're blowing this guy's mind! So so what this term in his equations did, what it provided was, on big cosmological uh, cosmological scales... Um, it produced a slight repulsive force to counteract the attractive force of gravity to okay. make a static universe. Right. Now, of course, many, many years later, we discover uh, that the universe is not static. Actually, in 1929, it was Edwin Hubble, former lawyer turned astronomer. That's great. Nice. Edwin <laughs> Hubble uh, looked out and said, oh, the universe isn't static. It's actually expanding. At this particular rate, Hubble's law. Einstein was wrong. Holy wow. shit. Until in 1999, I think, we discovered that the universe is, as I mentioned, accelerating it in its expansion. Which means okay. that Einstein was right because that repulsive force is so repulsive that it's sort of, you could think of, pushing out on the universe, causing it to go faster and faster. Right. And oh. so this number, this number, which is a very important number called the cosmological constant, it's just a number, right. is slightly positive. And that's, that's what's causing uh, the universe to, we think, accelerate. Yeah. The problem is, when we try to calculate what this number is through our methods of quantum field theory, through our methods of, of how we calculate things, um, we predict this number to be very, very big. And if it was this big, then it would wipe out everybody. And, and stars couldn't form, and, you, and, and planets couldn't form, and, and, and galaxies couldn't form. So, so the problem is, the problem is, why is this number so small? It's slightly positive, but why is it so small? And nobody knows. This is the problem of dark energy. This is, how do we get this number to be very, very small? Right. Nobody knows how to do it. Hmm. <laughs> Yes. Mystery to be solved. <laughs> oh my. I've had a, a brain kaboom moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, before Einstein, you mentioned that, because I, I remember reading a while back that ancient Greeks used to think that the universe, that Earth was the center of the universe, mm-hmm. and that that everything was pulling towards Earth, which I don't know if that would mean that the universe would be shrinking and not... Exp- so was that the consensus before Einstein? And um, then Einstein said, no, that's all wrong. It's static. Like, what, so, what, what so, was the consensus so, before Einstein? So you, you're, you're talking about uh, the geocentric model of the universe. That's exactly puts, what I was puts, thinking. Which puts Earth at the center, right, right? Right. And so this was, yeah, this was how people thought about our place in the universe all the way up until... Uh, a guy called Nicholas Copernicus 
Okay. In Copernicus, I've heard of him. Fifteen hundreds, I want to say. Okay. Um. And what? And and he proposed that we weren't the center of the universe. That the sun was the center of. The universe, right? Or the universe, that the sun that, was well, because at that time we didn't yeah. know about other uh, about other solar systems. Well, right, just, you know, we just right. looked up and we saw stars. We didn't yeah. know that these were other solar systems. Right. Um, so he proposes this. Of course, the church doesn't like it because God created the universe and they ha- we have to be the center. Right. So they did not so great things to him. Mm. Same thing with Galileo. Galileo, when he discovered that there's moons orbiting Jupiter. He said, oh, look, there's moons orbiting Jupiter. But that also meant that there were things that were orbiting things that weren't us. Mm. There was Jupiter. Celestial bodies. Celestial right. bodies, yeah. exactly. So the church didn't like that. And so they did some not-so-great things to Galileo. Right. Wow. It, it only, over time, yes, it was generally then we looked out into the cosmos, we discovered other planets, other things, and, and we saw other star systems and planets orbiting those. And so, yes, gradually we came to accept that the sun was the center of the solar system and that we were just on the outskirts of a galaxy and with 100 billion stars, and there's 100 billion galaxies roughly in the universe. I have a bit of a loaded question for you. Sure, sure. And it's a personal question, so right. you don't feel obliged to answer if you don't want okay. to. Okay, well, let's see. As a theoretical physicist, yes. you have obviously been exposed to concepts and like proven, I don't know, what do you call them? Conclusions. Yeah, yeah. Proven have, theories, proven... That yeah. shatter like, your like, universal outlook yeah. as raised by a Catholic kid. Because that's yeah. what we were. We went to yeah. Catholic school. We were raised by Catholic people. Right. What is your like relationship with like God and religion now, mm. as a theoretical physicist? Yeah. Uh, so I would say yeah. So I grew up Catholic, right? We went to, the, to Catholic school, high, high school, elementary school together, um, and I was I, I, you know, believed in God. I prayed uh, most nights uh, during high school. And then yeah, so then when I figured when I, when I discovered science, when I discovered uh, physics, and started to learn about some of these things, my faith kind of diminished significantly, right? And so I became what people would call an atheist, let's mm. say. Okay. And that it was like that. Um, I would say up until up until a couple of years ago. Now I'll tell you what kind of changed my mind. And it, I was listening to an, to another podcast, the Lex Friedman podcast. You probably right. have heard of him. Right. Um, and there was another. The, the podcast host was uh, a Stanford neuroscientist called Andrew Huberman. Yeah. And he's been on Joe Rogan before. Yeah. He's been on Joe yeah, Rogan a couple good. times. Yeah. yeah. And he was describing an experiment, a neuroscience experiment, that these people. I think one professor was in Stanford, another one was at NYU, collaborating. Right. And the experiment that he was describing went as follows. There was some animal, I think it was a monkey or something, I don't think he specified what animal it was. And there was a screen in front of the animal. And the, the animal was trained to like hit a button or something every time the, there's dots on the screen moved up mm. on the screen, okay? Every time they moved up, the animal signaled, yes, I see them moving up. And gradually what the researchers would do were they would take one dot and move it around, not up, and they would, you know, maybe take fifty percent of the dots and then scatter them around, not moving up, and slowly they were all just all over the place, not moving up, right? The point is they trained him very well to 
to notice when these dots were moving up on the screen. Now, neuroscience is very cool. My girlfriend does neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um, what they can do is they can go into the brain of this animal and they can silence and basically control the neurons that tell the animal that the dots are going up on the screen. Right. So what they do is they go in and they silence the neurons, meaning that when the dots go up on the screen, the neurons don't fire, and therefore the animal doesn't hit the button. Right. So it doesn't see. But then what they did was they made the dots on the screen, all of them, move down. At the same time they did that, they made the neuron fire in the animal's brain, telling the animal that the dots are moving up, and the, the animal hit the button. So in other words, in reality, the dots are moving down on the screen. Right. But because the neurons, and this might be an obvious point, but because the neurons are telling the animal the dots are moving up, the, dot, the, the animal perceives them as moving up. Mm-hmm. So what this means is our constructed reality is solely based on our neurons firing. So there could be, and this was my thinking back then when mm-hmm. I was watching it, right. I, was, I, I was thinking there could be, the underlying structure of reality could be such that we don't perceive it because our neurons are not firing. Wow, well, it goes back to that whole right? dark matter stuff. And in fact, this, we know this is the case because, so just a quick s- side comment, the way stars work are you have a bunch of hydrogen in the core and they, it's nuclear fusion. So the yeah. hydrogen is very hot. It fuses together. When this happens, it releases light and it releases these particles called neutrinos. Neutrinos don't interact very strongly with stuff. In fact, the light, when that happens in the core of the sun, the light that's released from that interaction takes, I think, on the order of a million years to get from the center of the sun to the surface of the sun. Holy. Right. Because it's doing a random walk through, right. through, right. through the oh, interior. Yeah, okay. right. Right. right? Neutrinos, on the other hand, these little particles, don't interact very much with anything, so they just go straight through. Mm. So what that means is um, there are roughly, on the order of six billion neutrinos passing through every square inch of your body every second of the day because these things just flow right through Earth as if it wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So these things, in other words, these things exist and we know they exist because we can measure them with our apparatuses, but they don't register any any neurons firing in our brains. So to answer the question about God and about faith, uh, I kind of changed my tune a little bit and wasn't so and I'm not so atheistic anymore and I recognize that you know there could be something about fundamental reality mm-hmm. that isn't in the material world mm-hmm. right right now whether or not that makes Islam or Christianity or Hinduism mm-hmm. or Buddhism or correct Right. I don't know. Yeah. Right. Um, all I'm saying is, I'm a little. Uh, I believe in it a little bit more. That is a profound way yeah. to find faith. 
that is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> a scientific way. That, yeah. That, yeah. You know? yeah. See, that's what I mean. Like, I mean, I know like quite a, quite a few scientists, just like casually. And I've asked this question before. Uh, maybe that's why I'm so brazen with it. But <laughs> they've said like, no, I just don't. And I'm like, you know, that's the answer that you almost expect from a scientist to kind of be like, look how wrong your theories are. But like, this is the kind of God that I talk about. Like, this thing that is so vast and powerful, it's beyond human com- comprehension. Yeah. And I think people have a hard time with that idea. Like I think something so. yeah. being beyond I, their comprehension. I think it's yeah. human nature. People want to understand things. Yeah. And then when, they, when, when something's so vast like that, like you said, that's uncomprehendable, then... It, it, you, I, I think you'll veer away from it, mm-hmm. right? And then that might lead people to believing in more in science, which there's nothing wrong with, obviously. It's part of the but, story. And then that's, yeah, it's, it, it's that, that's, you know. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think people uh, often, some people might say science and religion cannot coexist. Hmm. This is obviously not true because yeah. Newton was a believer and, right. you know, everybody... You know, during, during, even during the Enlightenment, they they believed in God. Newton believed in alchemy. You know, the idea that you could turn ordinary objects into gold. Right. Um, I think people confuse <coughs> uh, religion and science in, in in the way that, like, when you ask a scientist, "Do you believe in God?" They'll they'll immediately point to empirical evidence and say, "Well, mm. there's no evidence for it, so therefore I don't." Right. Fine, but. Um, but religion is not science, so religion is faith-based. Right. The same way you ask a religious person, do you, be- do you believe in God? They say, of course. Look at all of this evidence. Well, as soon as you bring in evidence, then that's not faith anymore, because mm-hmm. faith is, by definition, believing in something without evidence. Yeah. Exactly. Now, yeah, so, so you can make, uh, somebody could make an argument, maybe as just I. I, I just did mm-hmm. for perhaps believing in something that's deeper than our material universe. Right. But at the end of the day, I have to recognize that I could be wrong at the end of the day. Well, and it could it. not be the case, but, but it's a, it, it's a faith in it. It's not science. Right. Right. And even when, so I, I've been listening a lot to this religious scholar called Reza Aslan and he makes an interesting point that I still have to think about a little bit more. He makes the argument that it's an, that people shouldn't the the notion of believing in Christianity or believing in Islam or believing in Hinduism or any other religion is actually false because you like you don't he he makes the argument you don't believe in these things. These things are are a medium to get to you to the thing to believe in. Right. Mm. Right? Yeah. Right. For real. Yeah. yeah. In other words, in other words, it. I think Buddha made this analogy like you have uh like you don't to get to the water that's 6 feet underneath the ground, you don't build, you know, six 1-foot wells, you build one 6-foot well yeah. to get right. to the wall. Yeah. But you but but at the end of the day you get want to get to the water. You don't believe in the well. Yeah. You want to get to the water, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So the well is the tool to get you there. Exactly, it's just and, a tool, and that's what like something like the church exactly. is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So right. that's my take on it. That's, that's a very yeah. good perspective. Yeah. yeah. So have you have you changed your relationship then with the church as like an institution? Well, the church. Look, I I uh, not really. I mean, I don't really believe uh, much of the old. T- See, that's the other thing. When the, the when the thing like the Bible was written, so what we were 
what what I think people do is they're taking their notion of what they think truth is, mm-hmm. right? And they're mapping it onto this book that was written two thousand years ago. Yeah, the people that wrote the book two thousand years ago had a different notion of what truth was yep, because right. the scientific revolution didn't happen yet. Absolutely. Right. As the, when the scientific revolution happened, our definition of what truth was changed. Mm. And so I think, I do think Jesus was a real person. I think he did walk this earth. Mm. Um, I think Muhammad was a real person. So, yeah, I think too. Buddha was a real person. Right. These people, I think all of them we're here just to point to something I think that was that's hidden that's deeper about reality mm-hmm. whether or not right. they're right or wrong I think it's worth exploring these ideas yeah. absolutely yeah <clears throat> that is a very good explanation when people I feel like when people do the religion versus science I, I feel the, I, I think the topic that comes up probably the most is like the big bang theory the start of it all right yeah. Which at the end of the day is still a theory, right? The Big Bang Theory, well, but we have, is well, it proven? Well, we I mean, have a lot of evidence for it. The right. Big, interestingly, the Big Bang Theory was um, first propo- pro- proposed by a, um, a priest. A right. priest. In, mm-hmm. uh, I can't remember where he was. I don't think... I want to say it's the Vatican, but I don't think it's the Vatican. His name was Georges Lemaitre. Wow. And um, so there's a lot of evidence for the Big Bang. In fact there is an afterglow of the Big Bang that permeates the entire universe. Right, before. yeah. It's called the cosmic microwave background. Mm. Right. And this is, this is directly uh, testable. We've gone out. We've seen it. This is uh, predicted by the Big Bang Theory because the universe at that time was very hot and there's a lot of radiation. That radiation was left over. Um, we have a lot of great evidence. For example... Big Bang nucleosynthesis, which is the idea that when matter first came into existence, similar to like how uh, stars, there's nuclear fusion. Mm-hmm. Well, that was happening back then too during the Big Bang, and so we can we can make predictions to, to, uh, about how much helium there is in the universe and how much hydrogen there is in the universe, right. based on the Big Bang model. We go out and we test these th- th- these abundances they're very uh, much in line with our predictions. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Big Bang is very well tested. Right. What I would say is we know something happened back then, 13.6 billion years ago. We know we're pretty confident in in running the clock back all the way to about 10 to the minus 33 seconds, which is 0.33 zeros and then one mm-hmm. right. seconds after. But we don't know what happened at T equals zero or time equals zero. We don't know how it came into existence. Right. This is the idea of quantum gravity. The only way that we're going to be able to say what was before the Big Bang or how the Big Bang came into existence, how the universe came into existence, um, is to have a proper understanding of this idea called quantum gravity, hmm. which is what I work on. Very interesting. <laughs> Man, this is like the, the fabric of God himself you're dealing with here. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool stuff. Do you think yeah. that God and the Big Bang Theory, I mean, this would be opinion-based, obviously, but, it, you know, that 
it would go hand in hand. Like it could go hand in hand. I mean, well, a lot of yeah. So before the idea of the Big Bang Theory, right? Um, the idea that the universe had a starting point um, right. was not really mainstream in science. Right. It was the religious people and the people that were that believed that in a creator that created the universe that said the universe had to have a, a beginning because mm-hmm. God created the universe, so it had to have a beginning. Right. Um, and it turned out that we think that is correct. Um, so they they do, in some sense, go hand in hand. Um, whether or not a being literally created the universe, I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah, then, then it goes back to a common question of, well, who created the creator, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and, and I think some religious people might say, well, he's an infinite being, or it is an infinite being. Right. Outside of our space and time, therefore it doesn't need a creator. Which, right. if they want to believe that, that's fine. But I, I personally, I just don't know. Yeah. 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 Uncomprehendable. <laughs> Uncomprehendable. It, it, it really it is. It yeah. really yeah. is. Yeah. Like it's that's, which is exactly what I've been saying. It, it, that's exactly where it should be. I think it's supposed to be perfectly uncomfortable mm-hmm. to just not know because it's so vast. I mean... What is a God particle? I'm sorry. I just popped into my head. What Good is question. a God particle? Good question. <laughs> it's a great question. It's a great question. All right. The God particle. Um, I'm trying to think of how to start this. Wow. So, this so, is so, 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 so. Um, in the early 20th century, people were starting to think about something called quantum physics. Okay, quantum physics deals with uh, particles that make up atoms, and atoms make up objects, molecules, and molecules make up objects. And so people were thinking about quantum mechanics. People like Schrodinger, Erwin Schrodinger, wrote down his equation, right. Schrodinger's equation uh, for a quantum particle. But then Einstein had his theory of relativity, and people, people asked, well, can we combine these two? Can we combine special relativity uh, and, and quantum mechanics? as Schrodinger saw, the answer was no, you can't do that. The reason you can't do that is because when you try to combine these two things, what you'll end up getting is um, that something called particle number isn't conserved. What that means is you could have, when you combine quantum mechanics with special relativity, you can have particles zipping along and then pop out of existence and then pop back into existence. So the number of particles in your process isn't a conserved quantity when you combine these two things. And this was something that Schrodinger's equation could not capture. Right. So we needed something, we needed, if we wanted to unify quantum mechanics with special relativity, uh, we needed something else, and that something else is something called quantum field theory. Quantum field theory is the idea that there is really no such thing as particles. What they are fundamentally are fields that permeate the entire universe. What is a field? A field is an object that takes a value at every point in space and time. For example, uh, the temperature in this room. The temperature in this room, if you go to one corner of the room, might be (laughs) one value. Another corner might be a different value. Right. right? So, like ever, ever standing constants. 
everywhere you go? Not constants. And, well, well, I mean, depends on what you're talking about. But quantum fields are not constant. They evolve in time. Okay. Um, so quantum fields, so, for example, there's an electron, right? There's an electron field permeating throughout the, the entire universe. And what we call an electron is a little blip in the field, a little mm. excitation in the field. Light is an electromagnetic field, and little particles of light called photons are little blips in the field, right. and mm. so on for <coughs> other elementary particles like quarks, mm -hmm. like the God particle Higgs, Higgs boson, it's called. <laughs> um, so we took this th theory of, of quantum field theory, and we tried to, to um, construct theories about relativistic theories, taking into account Einstein's special theory of relativity, relativistic theories of the particles, uh, the elementary particles that we um, saw, like an electron, like a proton, neutron, that sort of thing. Uh, and it's very successful. It's very successful. Um, so we have something called quantum electrodynamics, which deals with the, which is the quantum version of, of light, right? And how okay. light interacts right. with matter. Mm -hmm. uh, we have something called quantum chromodynamics, which is the quantum version of what is referred to as the strong interaction. The strong interaction holds protons and neutrons in atoms together. Okay. Because if you remember from high school, like charges repel and opposite charges attract. I don't know if you remember this. Mm -hmm. So if you have two protons that sit next to each other inside an atom, inside the nucleus of an atom, they want to repel, but the only way they can't repel is there, if there's some force holding it together. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the strong nuclear force we call wow. it. Wow, okay, cool. Okay. Okay? There's something called the weak nuclear force, which governs decay of particles, like, like the decay of the neutron. That's governed by the weak interaction, weak nuclear force. All of this strong, electromagnet electromagnetic weak, are governed by something called quantum field theory. That's the language. Okay. So we constructed what we call the standard model of particle physics. The standard model of particle physics, and in particular, quantum electrodynamics, is the most precise theory that humans have ever come up with in history. We can make a prediction. The electron is spinning. It's a little, you can think of it as a little spinning particle. The fact that it's spinning um, uh, tells you that it responds in a particular way to magnetic fields. Mm -hmm. And we can calculate the strength at which sort of it responds to magnetic fields using this thing called quantum electrodynamics. Mm -hmm. And it's a number. It's, the number is, it's called the gyromagnetic ratio. It's called, it's two point and then a bunch of decimal places. The theory, when we, and I just did this in my quantum field theory course, uh, we can make this prediction, this number that we could, just math, just on a piece of paper. We make this prediction, it comes out to 13 decimal places. We can make this prediction. We go out and we test it. Every decimal place to 13 decimal places is exactly the calculation that we, that, that we performed. Wow. So in other words, 13, decimal, 13 places. decimal places. This is the most accurate theory ever existed, ever to be uh, created. Anyway, we have the standard model of particle physics around numerous predictions, numerous Nobel Prizes, uh, numerous experimental validations. It's very well tested. There are some slight problems that we can get into. Very well tested. There's one thing that's, that was wrong with it, and that was 
there was no way to generate a mass for the particles, like the electron or like these particles called quarks. Quarks make up protons and neutrons. There's no way to generate a mass for these things. So the theory was mm. sa- said, these things are massless. They don't have any mass. Well, that's obviously not the case because we're massive and we're made of these things. Mm. So they have to have mass. <coughs> Where does the mass come from? So this guy called Peter Higgs, who was at the University of Edinburgh, back in the 60s... I can feel that this is about to fuck me up. Back in the 60s <laughs> says, hmm, let me introduce another field called the Higgs field, which is slightly different than the other electron field. And electron field has spin. Photon field, light has spin. Mm-hmm. These things have different spin, but they have spin nonetheless. This Higgs field doesn't have spin. It's a, what we call a scalar field. And let me, he said, let me make this field interact with the particles in such a way as to generate a mass for these particles. Okay, you could do this. And in fact, this goes into something called... So it turns out that the weak nuclear force has to be sort of unified with the electromagnetic force at mm. the high energies. Mm. And at low energies, this unification breaks into electromagnetic force. Mm. This is controlled by Higgs's particle, the Higgs boson, and this breaking of the symmetry... Symmetry, yeah. So these are things that we haven't discussed yet. But... <laughs> but but the standard model, the, the quantum field theory, is based on symmetries, and these symmetries can break because of this Higgs particle, okay. this Higgs uh, field. The point is, he did this in the 60s, and he was able to generate a mass, but people didn't see this in any experiment, and not a, uh, all the way up until 2012, which is when we turned on the Large Hadron Collider in, in Switzerland. When we turned this on, when we fired protons and smashed protons together, um, we finally slapped the Higgs field so hard that it produced a particle called the Higgs boson or the God particle. So the God particle, to answer, this is a long answer. Wait, humans um, made a particle? Well, humans made a, a, an experimental apparatus, the Large Hadron Collider, Yeah. Um, to figure out that the particle was there. So in other words, they took protons, they smashed protons together, and... Yeah. It created so much energy that it created one of these particles. That it created that particle. Oh, okay. Called the Higgs boson. Okay. And why do they call it the God particle? Well, because it gives the particles mass. That's the point. And, and that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Makes things real. Yeah. <laughs> Brought it into fruition. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, wow. yes, yes. And so wow. he got the Nobel Prize. Uh, wow. He did this in the 60s. He had to wait, you know, 50 plus years until finally they found it. And, was, and he, was he alive when he got it? Or was yeah, he yeah, he's still, still alive. Oh, yeah. uh, wow. University of Edinburgh in, in Scotland. Oh, oh good for him. Uh, he, made it to, he made it to see he it. made it to the big tent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With good the God particle. Yeah. Jeez. Wow. This stuff is crazy. It's crazy. Science, it, it's so mind-blowing. To me, the, the reason why I was interested in, interested in theoretical physics is that I think it's mind-blowing that, like I mentioned before, this, this number that you could predict, the 13 decimal places. Look... People, people in high school say, they learn math, and say, when am I going to use this math? When am I going to use this math? You know, I'm, I'm learning about right. these parabolas and these y equals mx plus b, the line, and when am I going to ever use this? Mm. You can think that, okay, if you're not a physicist or an engineer or something, fine, yeah. when are you going to use yeah. it? Yeah. But the fact that human beings are able to take these 
silly little symbols that you can write on a piece of paper. Paper. I can write you the entire standard model of particle physics in one inch on a piece of paper. Wow. And this thing um, describes very accurately the entire universe that we see modulo gravity. It doesn't have gravity in it. So and that's the whole idea of quantum gravity. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's the reason why I enjoy theoretical physics is because I can write down these symbols and predict things about the real universe. That's right. really cool to me. And that's kind of yeah. like the only way that you can really explore the universe, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the ways. Again, another way, you have very deeply religious people who can come up with religious truths and truths about sort of maybe morality and stuff. Mm. That's another way. Right. But if you want to talk about the fundamental structure, what is this place made out of? Yeah. Theoretical physics, in particular high energy theoretical physics. Right. Um, okay. Does this. Yeah. Is this the exact same stuff that Sheldon Cooper does? Sheldon Cooper from the Big Bang Theory studied string theory, I think. String oh, theory, yeah. yeah. String theory is something else if you want to get into it. I remember Penny, I remember Penny on the show asking him, so what's new in string theory? And he looks at her and he goes, nothing <laughs> yeah i mean i can't remember exactly I, yeah i can't remember exactly um when the episode, episode yeah i remember yeah. i remember i remember yeah. that but the but look string theory has been around for yeah 50 plus years right um a lot of developments a lot of very big developments have been made from right. string theory but it has yet to produce a testable prediction a testable it's still still a mathematical framework right. that we don't know if it's, if it's actually corresponds to our own universe or not. Can you explain how like the funding system works in terms of like the universities yeah. and you know what I mean? Well, I, the, the way I yeah I don't know too much about it, but right. I think the way it works is you have professors who get hired by the university right. to teach and do research. Right. Um, they have a salary from the university. Right. Um, and then, depending on what area, if you're in more of an experimentalist and you need uh, equipment to buy and stuff, or right. more of a theorist, you just need a pen and paper. Um, these researchers apply for grants, government grants mostly. Sometimes right. grants from, you know, sometimes a company will give a scientist a grant to do some research in bio- biology or something. Right. Um, but for physics, it's mostly government funded. And so you apply for these grants. Some people get the grants, some people don't get the grants. Um, and yeah, and then you get to do basically whatever you want with that money. Right. And obviously you want to do your research with that money. Right. Right. And take on graduate students with that money and stuff. Right. So right now it's all pretty much government funded. Right. Which in my view, um, I think, I don't know, I think needs to change. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, it's very weird to me that science in some ways, is so underfunded. Right. Um, especially graduate students wanting to become scientists basically don't make anything. They make a little bit from teaching and research. Right. But certainly not certainly not enough to live in Toronto. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it's weird to me that you have biologists studying cures for cancer who make a decent salary. But, you know, I, I saw... Look, I don't know how true this is, but I saw on Six Buzz on my phone oh. uh, there was some woman who was apparently getting paid $2 million a day to let people watch her sleep. Um, yeah. I don't... 
<laughs> I don't really know how. I don't. I don't know if that's really true. But if it is true, then it's weird to me that the markets or whatever, however you want to. Because we're dumb monkeys. You know, Even man. if you said a thousand dollars a day. Right. It's it, it, that's ridiculous. So I think a, to me that's live in a funny place, my friend. That's clear, <laughs> that's clear evidence that maybe we don't live in what people call a meritocracy. The idea being. The harder, your work, the harder you work, the further you'll go. Most right. definitely not. Um, not anymore. But that's not even the law of nature. Like, no animal <laughs> right. gets to have that pleasure. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyway, I think some, some serious changes have to happen in, in society right. in order for us. Because, you know, right now we have countries that have nuclear weapons and we need scientists. Right. And, and in particular, of course, I'm biased because of what I study, but... Right. but one of the reasons why I study what I what I study is to learn something about space and time, and in particular to 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 maybe learn if we can go beyond Einstein's speed limit, because in Einstein's theory you can't go faster than the speed of light, right? Which means that it takes a very long time for us to get anywhere to get anywhere in the universe, right? And you know we've all seen like Star Wars and Star Trek. I I don't view these things as science fiction. You know I, I want um, of course, they are science fiction, but I, I want to be able to have humans traverse the cosmos. Right, right. And if in order to do that, yeah. Possible. And in order to do that, yeah. we need uh, to figure out something to go beyond Einstein to figure out something right. about space and time. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, I think science should be more funded. That for that's sure, yeah. Ex- that's exciting. That's that's crazy. I had a very good question lined up, but I've lost it. It'll come back to me. We yeah. can do. String theory, you can do uh, what I work on is something called, the, this might pique your interest, holography. The idea that the universe is, the poetic way to say it is the idea that the universe is a hologram. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> We could do that, we could do on. that, yeah. That, that, okay. that reminded me of my question. It's a good question. Right. I think you'll have, I don't know, maybe strong opinions on it. So, you're talking about the funding of, like, you know, researchers and, and scientists and how it's, you know, really terribly underfunded, but... The, the same can be said. There's a lot of money in the private sector and in the corporate sphere. Yeah. And you do see a lot of like researchers and scientists sell their soul, proverbially, to these corporations yeah. and are, are fabricating science mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is being used to mm-hmm. you know, hurt people. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think a lot of people kind of have a problem trusting scientists. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially at the theory phase of their research, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, theory-based sciences are so underfunded is because you're right. Like people want to see within within the within our society, our capitalistic framework, and I. There are elements of capitalism that I really love. There are elements of capitalism that I don't really yeah, love. Yeah, same. Right. I think it's produced. Look at look at this place. Like it's produced a lot of great things, mm-hmm. um, but in this framework, people want to see results and they want to see what technology you're making to to help us make products in order to, you know, create companies to sell these products, right? And so, people um, um, studying theory-based sciences are viewed as well. It's theory. What application does it have? Mm-hmm. To which I will counter, so I just described to you the whole saga of quantum field theory and quantum yeah. mechanics. Um, in the early 1900s, there was, uh, so in the 1800s, 
I, so, okay, so I mentioned quantum electrodynamics. Well, for every quantum theory, there's a classical theory of that. So there's classical electrodynamics, mm-hmm. which is uh, some, some guy called Maxwell in the 1800s discovered the equations for this. Mm-hmm. So if you take classical electrodynamics and you try to ask, you know when you heat something up and it glows, mm-hmm. right? That's light. Mm-hmm. What is the energy associated with that light? And when you apply, when you try to calc, uh, when you try to apply classical electrodynamics to the question of what is the energy of that glowing thing, you get infinity, and that doesn't make sense right. because if it was infinity, it'd be destroyed. Right. Right. So that seems what what question is that? That seems such like a mundane question, right? Who cares? Mm-hmm. Well, this guy called Planck in the early 19th century said that's weird let me try to solve this and in solving it the answer to the solution is quantum physics right instead oh, of wow. <laughs> in, instead of light sort of being a continuous wave sort of thing light was a particle in quantum physics and so if you put that into the equations you end up getting a nice you know they call it a Planck distribution Do you know but, how i would have started that paper but wait there's more. There's more. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's what but what? But, what but, but so so th- this is an idea. This is a theory. This is all mathematics, right? Mm-hmm. All theory. Mm-hmm. Okay. You, you ask the question. It, it, you get infinity. You come up with the theory. Quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics underlies everything in our society today. So without asking the question, this stupid question, let's say of, well, this glowing object, uh, you get infinity when you, when you try to apply. Without asking that question, we wouldn't have lights. We wouldn't have these microphones. Yeah. We wouldn't have GPS systems. Yeah. We wouldn't have anything. So the, the idea that theory-based science, science uh, doesn't produce um, uh, things that we can use is ridiculous because GPS systems does, don't work without Einstein's theory of relativity. Phones don't work without semiconductors, which, which, which uh, quantum physics uh, underlies, mm-hmm. right? So we need theory-based sciences because we don't know what we're going to discover. That's the whole fun of it. That's the whole beauty of it, mm-hmm. right? We may discover something in quantum gravity about the structure of space-time that will allow us to traverse many millions of light years in a second. We don't know. We don't know. So that's why I, that's my argument for the funding of theoretical sciences. <laughs> I think that's a good spot to wrap it up for the time being. We are definitely getting you back. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, for sure. I'd love to. More that I'd love to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are going to bring you back. Yeah, yeah, we do. We get to. Freaking yeah. Thrill, man. Honestly, thanks for coming on. Thank you, thank you. It this, was a pleasure. This was like. No, it was it was incredible. Yeah, that's definitely definitely gonna bring you back. Definitely gotta go. Yeah, you know it did. It really did. It does. Yeah. Definitely gotta go uh, deep into some topics. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to be back. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna sure. sit down and like listen to this episode like four or five times and just make notes. <laughs> and just yeah. like, oh, it's a good introduction. Going. It's a good introduction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It was yeah. very very well done. Very yeah. well done. Thanks for having me. Thank you Thanks sure. for joining us. So this has been. Uh, think on that this is the Everything and Anything podcast. We post our episodes every Monday except for the last two weeks. Sorry about that. Uh, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Like, subscribe, follow us, and uh, check out our social media platforms uh, to see Mike here and follow his story because uh, we'll be bringing it back anyway. So, yeah. yeah. But thanks for joining us.